Hey, what's going on, everyone? Uh, today's podcast is with my friend Dom Phipps. If you're not familiar with Dom, uh, he's been working on a history of freestyle book called Wall to Wall Freestyle. He's been working on it for a little bit. And I'm really excited about the project, and I thought it'd be cool to sit down and share some of it with you um, so you guys could learn about it too. Um, as usual, this podcast is brought to you with the help from the guys over at digbmx.com. Ugh, I can't even talk today. Um, the crew over there has been cranking out quality content since the, since the early 90s, so do yourself a favor, head over to the site, and watch No Donut. Uh, that had me cracking up the, la- the last episode. So give that a watch, peruse around, check things out. Um, well, yeah, so without any further ado, here's Dom Phipps. Yeah, uh, I think this is the first time I've ever done a podcast in my van. Coming live from... We're coming live from my Delica. From the Bank of America. Yeah, we're sitting in the Bank of America parking lot in the van doing a podcast. Um, yeah, so I'm sitting here with a... And I, I, every time I say your last name, I do feel like I say it wrong, but Dom Phipps. You got it right, dude. Oh, all right. So, and we want, we're going to talk to him today about the uh, wall-to-wall freestyle project. It's a kind of history, well, it's not kind of, it is a history of freestyle book, yep. um, and just kind of give you guys some information on the project, and, you know, just share some stories with, uh, you know, how things are going about, so. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been a, it's been a, uh, a few months now of kind of being on the road and interviewing a lot of people, and trying to get more people um, along the way, and, and actually getting everybody that we wanted pretty much so yeah i was pretty excited about some of the names i saw well we you know you kind of the project really began as an idea that was based around tons of stuff that i gathered over the years doing other projects other bmx projects and and, i mean let everybody know you you had a hand in with like the history of haro books and stuff yeah i mean I, i put the i put together the the haro uh, documentary books for them and I also the first thing I did for them was I produced the uh, Haro Freestyler reissue so the first frame that was ever made as a freestyle frame Bob Haro designed it yep made by Talker in Fullerton and it just so happened when I got talking to them that they um, they reached out through Bob and they wanted to do something to kind of raise awareness of their history and Bob at the time was probably a little bit too busy or something, so he put me in touch. And the first thing that I did was I identified that the frame, the first freestyle frame was made in 1982. So we were, this was 2011 at the time, so it was just a perfect time to do that as a kind of 30-year yeah. anniversary. So we made this really decadent, amazing, American-made replica, sunk it into some, you know... I remember la- the big box that came phone. in, yeah. Yeah, it, it, was a, it was a really cool project. And it kind of it kind of started something it, because it was it was successful. We sold a few hundred of them, and you know there was a lot of positivity around it. Um, Haro obviously became quite interested in doing more stuff like that. Yeah, well, and, when you uh, it, when you have a company that's actually got a deep history, it's like why exactly. not do that? You know, they they kind of have this war chest of of 
you know, products and ideas that, that Bob designed and yeah, made. He, he designed so much 80s. iconic stuff. His, his stuff was always, you know, I mean, you ask anybody from the from the time, it was just always amazing. So anyway, they, they're doing a lot of that. Johnny's, Johnny's now kind of uh, in the wheelhouse doing that stuff. Um, so I kind of came away from them and I started doing other projects. And I created this folder on my desktop of my Mac at some point. And every now and again, I would go into my Dropbox and just kind of look at all the stuff I'd pulled together. Pictures, you know, interviews I'd done with people, uh, writers, um, you know, all sorts of stuff, really. And I would drag it into this folder on my desktop now and again and, and just think, you know, oh, that's a great picture. Um, and at a certain point in time, I looked at it and I thought, you know what, there's, there's enough here to do something with that could be you know probably quite a comprehensive book dealing with an era and then I kind of developed it a bit further in my mind and it eventually became this idea to do something that basically tried to tell the story of the first decade of of freestyle yeah so I'm not one to really you know kind of indulge the eras of freestyle too much so I'm I'm not really a guy that you know I don't I don't kind of section it up but I did feel that that first decade was so pivotal to freestyle's evolution and, and actually what it's become today. So I just went about looking at, you know, what, what would the, the milestones and the factors of the story be? Who would be in it? And of course, yeah, we, we're a long way down the line now of doing it. How long, how long have you been in doing, working on this project for? Well, I kind of started working on it last summer. Um, and I say working on it, it was just... I guess challenging myself to to work out how to put something like that together. Yeah. Um, and it's really kind of started work on it in September. Actually, what happened was I contacted um, a good mate of mine, a guy who, you know, has a great reputation in, in this scene and is a super cool guy. Um, and that's Xavier Mendez. Yep. And he's somebody, I, I threw my idea down. I said, listen, what do you think about doing this? Xavier's always been a guy that's helped me get in contact with a lot of riders you know, he's a good friend of Mikey and, and Brian and Wilson and all those guys. Um, and I said, you know, you think this is worth doing? And he's like, I think it's really, really good idea. And I can see the challenges you're going to have. I want to try and help you get past those challenges. Yeah. So he kind of joined me. And, and as a team, we've been, you know, we put together some packages and took some support from some brands to make it happen. And he kind of takes care of a lot of that side of it for me. So dealing with getting things made and well, I kind of go deep and, and interview people and I'm putting the book together. So it's been, yeah, we're kind of seven or eight months into it. Um, I've seen some amazing people at this point and I have heard some stories that I have to say as a fan of this story. Yeah. Blow me away a little bit. So, so yeah. Um, another, well, look, I can't even talk, but, uh, <laughs> no worries, man. uh, so what, we got that part of, you know, the kind of beginning background of the book, but what's kind of your background in BMX? Like, I know you kind of ran a Harl Collector site, but kind of what's your background with yeah. BMX before that and stuff? Well, I was a, you know, I was a kid. I rode BMX in, well, I rode, I was, I rode freestyle BMX in the mid-80s back in England. Okay. Um, never really, to be quite honest with you, never. I never did anything remarkable. I was a kid in a neighborhood team. We had a, a scene and we had a... You know, a guy, one of one of my friend's dads was, uh, you know, he gave in and built us a ramp and, 
you know, we kind of did some shows and stuff. Yeah, just um, your normal 80s yeah. BMX kid stuff. We, we were really a product of of the early scene. So freestyle was something that, you know, in that, in that early 80s period, um, we, were, we were some of the kids that got caught up in the epidemic of it. Yeah. So, yeah, just, you know, living it through the magazines, living in England, in suburbia, having a great, really good neighborhood uh, BMX shop, which was important. Yeah, what was, little, the, what was the shop's name? It was called Goods BMX. Shut up. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was in Winchester in England. Um, Winchester, I think it was called the Winchester BMX Center, something like that. But they had a ramp in the, in the back. And, and England, I mean, at that time, had a, I mean, it's always had a crazy BMX scene, but, I mean, it was really rolling then, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it really was. And, you know, for the, for the size of the country and the population, we had a lot of good riders. Yeah. I mean, Craig Campbell, you know, for one. Uh, Jeff Darrenforth. Jeff Darrenforth, um, Billy Stupple. You know, and on the racing front, of course, tons of good racers, Andy Ruffle, Tim March, those guys, um, and they crossed over into freestyle. But yeah, we, we had a strong scene, and England, I guess, was a, a country that took to it, you know, um, as enthusiastically as any other country yeah. in the world did. But we, we lived it through the magazine, so, you know, um, it is quite kind of weird for me to be in this position now as the the guy that kind of you know attempts to get the stories told and i had a website for a while where i did some of that and i just kind of for me i just had this interest in revisiting it i guess as an adult and looking back through that window and thinking yeah. you know it was a phenomenon i can remember feeling you know really intensely you know addicted to bmx and it was interesting to me to say okay so what was actually going on what do i remember and, and what was I, I mean that time i mean i it's kind of like the golden era of BMX. I mean, every era's got its little niches that make it special. Totally. Yeah. But, um, I mean, yeah, that that era, like, I mean, th- there's a lot of things that came from the 80s that really grabbed and connected people. And BMX was yeah. one of those big things. I mean, the bikes and the style and everything was just perfect at the time. It, it was perfect. And for us, we, we didn't have anything like it. We didn't have, you know, I mean, for all the things that a, a bike does for a kid you know, to give you the freedom to go further to see your friends and, and have a bigger social scene or whatever. Um, BMX also brought other factors too. So it brought the creativity, you know, you could suddenly pick up a magazine and, and see a kind of motor frame sequence of how to do a trick. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, <laughs> I was looking at a picture of my bike recently and what a, an absolute disgusting looking thing it was because you know every week it was experimenting with another part oh yeah or another color um you know working or whatever trying to find enough money to to buy something from the shop so it was it was a really intense thing an intense connection for a lot of kids um it brought freedom it brought that opportunity to be creative um and i think that's why everyone looks back on it and has quite a powerful reconnection to it you know so, yeah, nothing remarkable for me really on a bike. But Well, just, I mean, I, I, you know, some people will be like, oh, you know, I rode, but I was this. It's like if you rode and you connected with BMX bike and it gave you something, I mean, that's that's all it takes to be a BMXer. You know, I tell people yeah. come to my shop all the time, you know, like some older dudes maybe they want to get back into it or even younger people. I'm like, you know, you don't have to be the best. I'm like, some people BMX is just riding down the street, jumping off curbs. And some people it's going out and trying to kill yourself to get one trick but i'm like it's still all bmx yeah it's how you're experiencing you know the world just on your bike exactly so exactly yeah um so yeah going into it 
Um, you know, I, like I was saying earlier, I was really excited about the list of some people that you're talking to. Um, can you talk about some of the people that you've worked with and yeah. that, that are going to have like interviews or I, I, not necessarily interviews because I don't even know how you're laying out the book, but you know, yeah. that you've talked to and have stories from. Yeah. I mean the, you know, for me though, the, the kind of criteria, if you want to, to sort of make sure the book has, you know, a kind of standard of quality to it if you want um was to do some research again so i i go back in and i research what i believe the milestones are in the story and they become the chapters in this case but the research then it you know identifies who we speak to yeah so it's not a case of you know i'm a fan of that writer it's more a case of actually where am i going to find the story so um you know there are some very well-known factors in that story so the bmx action trick team the Haro trick team, um, you know, the the skate park and pool riding scene that was coming out of the late 70s and, and what have you. So I started looking at the chapters and working out where I'm going to find the answers, really. The thing that's really interesting to me is that late 70s scene when, you know, BMX was coming out of... Uh, well, BMX racing was a big deal at that point, a yeah. massive deal. Skateboarding was, you know, I guess on its way through its first cycle of popularity... Um, and those two things together were, were quite a large part of why freestyle even happened, I think. Yeah. So I went out looking uh, for people that were riding in that early era. So I spoke to Bob Haro, I spoke to Bob Morales, I spoke with uh, Mike Buff. Um, I recently interviewed R.L. Osborne, which is, you know... Yeah, I mean, R.L.'s one of the biggest icons in BMX. He, Except, I mean, maybe some people not, you know, listening to this podcast might not recognize R.L.'s name, but... Someone just honked at us. Uh, but, you know, if you don't recognize RL's name, I mean, he's just this, he's, you know, top five uh, influential BMX freestylers ever, you know? Without a doubt. And, and he's, the reason he's not that, that kind of well-known, I guess, beyond that generation is because he, he's chosen to kind of... He pulled away in the early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's, he's not been as involved as a, as a lot of the other riders have, but... But even when you you're not involved it doesn't take away from like what well, you've done because once exactly. you put that footprint down and he put a heavy foot down <laughs> like, yeah, and he and he left it down for about 10 years do you know yeah what I mean? he wasn't he wasn't a guy that had three or four years of success and then faded out he was a guy that worked on i mean he was writing what how long was rl what i mean he was pro what 70 i, well, I that wasn't really yeah. a, a pro but he was still yeah, tell up to like ninety one, ninety two. You know, he car- he continued to reinvent himself. Yeah, he continued to work hard and and stay relevant, and he did. He was, you know, at the end of the day, you can say that being that he was the first guy to be in a freestyle trick team. He and Bob Harrow founding BMX Action yeah. Trick Team to be the guy that went right through that era and ride for ten years. You know, and still be relevant. You know that that's a massive achievement, and that's a unique achievement. Um, like with the BMX Action Freestyle team, who who was kind of the first dudes on that team? Well, the, the team was founded by Bob Harrow and R.L. Osborne mm-hmm. with, with the guiding hand of Bob Osborne. Um, okay. For those who don't know, Bob Osborne was the publisher, the journalist, the photographer who founded BMX Action magazine, yeah. um, which was essentially a bus, uh, BMX racing mag. But um, now and again, 
Bob would see something else and he would he would cover it. And Freestyle, I think he'd put a picture of Stu Thompson in at some point, riding a Reseda uh, skate park up in the valley. And he was Stu was getting a little bit of air off of one of these kind of snake runs. Yeah. But um, the story goes that Harrow was Bob Harrow was the the guy who was kind of um, perfecting these tricks. Um, other guys were riding and other guys were experimenting in swimming pools and, and whatever but Bob was a guy who kind of saw something in it and, and I guess dedicated a bit more time and effort yeah. to making it something he went to work at BMX Action Magazine and he took those tricks with him so he went to work there as the illustrator as the star yeah. artist um, and the story goes that you know RL saw Haro riding at lunchtime they got together they rode together but Bob Osborne told me that he came out one day and he saw Bob Harrow do a trick called the rock walk. Yeah. And he thought immediately, wow, you know, actually that's something a little bit more, you know, refined than these guys carving around bowls and doing whatever else. So he took Bob to a local schoolyard in Torrance and shot a murder frame sequence of that trick. Yeah. And that, that moment is really seen as being this kind of founding moment of freestyle. So... Bob Osborne, being a very proactive guy, put those two together, helped them to put together, you know, a ramp, um, it's uniforms or whatever, and they did the very first freestyle show at the BMX uh, Winter Nationals in Arizona in Chandler. What year was that? That was February of 1982, and that was the first ever BMX freestyle show. Oh, wow. I, for some reason, I thought it had been earlier, but I mean, dudes were still riding parks and stuff before then. Yeah, there was a scene... uh, you know, this is another thing I've tried to do in the book, and it, it is to try and resist the urge to try and answer the question of where this came from. Yeah. Because, you know, you're kind of going to... Undoubtedly, you're going to fail to do that, because there isn't one answer. There's not two, there's not three, and there's not four answers for it. There's a ton of different things that were happening. And there's a ton of different people that would argue about it. There, there absolutely is, yeah. And, you know, there was a... I, I think about, you know, when I called this thing the birth of the freestyle movement, I was thinking... God, probably one night when I had a couple of beers or something, I was thinking, you know, if this is a birth, you know, who are the parents of this thing? And I kind of got to the uh, the point of thinking, you know, BMX racing was like one of the parents because it was the industry, it was the bike handling, and it was, you know, these 20-inch bikes were there. I mean, arguably, people were doing things on Schwinn Stingrays way before that. Oh, yeah. But the BMX bike, as it became a 20-inch bike at some point, you know, that, that's a huge driving factor in how this thing started. And then when you look at the other side of it and you look at, you know, the, maybe the culture um, and the spirit of BMX came from skateboarding and surfing, where, you know, those scenes were not competitive and athletic. They were more about being creative. Um, and I think really, that you know, there was a time, particularly in the mid-70s in California, when there was a, a huge drought. And I remember somebody telling me, one of the guys I interviewed, he said suddenly no one was allowed to have water in their pools anymore and the the local you know the local town municipal swimming pool had to be drained all the reservoirs were dry all the gullies were dry and suddenly there was this enormous amount of skatable and rideable terrain out there and you know skateboarders were going further out to find places to ride and they would ride they would ride a bike yeah i mean a lot of, i mean I, the people i've talked to i mean everybody can discuss you know and there's always People bring up like skateboard and BMX beef or whatever, but you know, really all spawned from the same thing. People would ride their bike to a pool to skateboard, 
and they'd probably ri- and they'd ride their bikes in it. I mean, there's pictures and it's documented. You know, it's exactly. like, and then you know, it, it did split off from there. But I mean, that's really where the yeah. original tr- tr- transition riding is. Probably some surfer kid, not surfing in the morning, gets on his bike, grabs a skateboard, and pl- messes around in a pool with both of them. Suddenly, there's a bike in in the picture, and somebody jumps on it. And Stu Thompson told me some good stories about that, which yeah. will be in the book as well. Um, I mean, Stu Thompson. I mean, a lot of people don't realize he's kind of an early freestyle pioneer. Yeah, he, he's a Stu, Stu's very modest as well, and he's not he's not trying to lay claim to being part of the freestyle story. I mean, he's in his own right, he's a very successful BMX racer, but he does he does remember, and he was able to kind of paint the picture for me of what was happening. People were finishing racing, and then these guys, you know, didn't put their bikes away and, and do something else. They were living on their bike back then, like we live on our bikes now. Exactly. Right. You know, it was a lifestyle then. Yeah, and it was I mean, a slightly different one, but it was it was essentially kids on bikes. And at the end of the day, it was like, what else can we do on our bike? So, jump in the fence of skate parks. Yeah. You know, again, there's a, a short part in the book with jump in the fence where people like Fred Becker, Stu Thompson, uh, those guys are talking about. They wanted to ride in the skate park. They would go at night. They'd jump over the fence and drop in on their bike because they weren't allowed to do that during the day. Yeah. But then, of course, the the demise of skateboarding. Um, in the late 70s, early 80s. Suddenly, the, the skate park owners, who, you know, mostly were business guys. They weren't skaters. Yeah. Were looking for ways to, you know, keep their, their funding going. And suddenly, there were 25 BMX kids wanting to ride the park. So, it made it much easier for them to say, okay, let's do it. Um, yeah. And again, there's some good, some really good narrative in the book from people like Fred Becker, um, who who was one of the early pool riding pioneers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, what are some of the other? I mean, yeah, let's touch on some of the other maybe chapters or topics that you're going to be covering in the book or cruise. I mean, I guess you're kind of covering a whole range of things. So yeah, I mean, I, I've tried to I've tried to cover things that I think are pivotal to the evolution of the scene okay and what i mean by that is if it didn't happen would it have gone the same direction okay there's two tour chapters in there i'm not going to dwell too much on those right now but one is the Har- the first haro tour yep 1981 bob haro bob morales and ron haro uh went out uh in the summer of 1981 and took freestyle outside of california on the road really for the first time um at the same time the BMX action trick team went out. Mike Buff, R.L. Osborne, Dana Duke from Oakley. Um, so is those that guys the, is were that out. the Duke of Oakley? Yeah, the Duke. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a stunning individual, and he's uh, he's helped us out a lot in the book. Um, so anyway, those those two teams went out in pretty much at the same time, 1981, individually. But they were do, they were following the ABA race circuit and doing halftime shows, doing shows at shops. So there's some really, really good stories from those from those two. Tours. Oh, I bet, yeah. Um, so I'll leave that out that for now. Especially like, I mean, you got to think when those dudes were going out, the world hadn't. I mean, maybe pockets of the world had seen this, but most time people hadn't seen any of this on a bike. That is exactly right, and some of the feedback is quite interesting, really, from the point of view that you know these guys were watching something happen. They were going to places, and they were showing people something that had never been seen yeah. so to really kind of connect to to those times the funny thing when I actually when I interviewed Bob Haro Bob Morales and Ron Haro the thing that I noticed immediately about those three guys apart from the fact they were all really cool guys and very funny is they all kind of reconnected to their personality or their they reconnected to the moment they could have been yeah. in a van in that interview you know it was 
We're in a van in this interview. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, just like we're in a van in the parking lot at the bank. <laughs> you know, we're reconnecting to that. But no, these guys were like, as soon as we started talking, you know, it it, it went back to that dynamic. Those yeah. guys could have been, you know, taking the piss out of each other. Ron Haro, you know, fantastic stories as always. Bob Haro, you know, trying to trying to be the guy that, um, you know, steers the ship. And, and Bob Morales, who was younger and very much looked up to Bob at that time and uh, you know it was just really fascinating to hear yeah. that. so so that was very much that was a lot of fun um, the BMX Action Trick Team uh, tour chapter is also very very funny some good stuff uh, but the chapter really that I think is the heart of the book at the moment is the chapter about wizard publications yeah um, and if people you know fill in some people in if you're not familiar with wizard publications they were um the company that did BMX Action, yeah, um, they did free freestyling, which turned into Go, and they had a couple other little off breaks. That they had uh, Homeboy Magazine, yeah, Club um, Homeboy. Towards the end of the uh, freestyle, was freestyle now under them? No, I don't think so. I think it was pretty much Homeboy, which was a zine. Um, and there's a reason that that that, that existed. Again, yeah, well, they did the they did four issues of a magazine too for Homeboy. They did, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the Wizard Publications chapter essentially was Bob Osborne was a fireman, and his uh, kids were well. One of his kids in particular, RL, was you know just a young kid in the neighbourhood at the right time, wanted to ride bikes, and this family had this very had this BMX centric lifestyle for a while. Windy became the photographer, and you know BMX became their lives. And at a certain point, Bob Osborne started a magazine, BMX Action. Um, and there's a little bit of a backstory to that, which is in the book too. Yeah. Um, and it became this this kind of epicenter for everybody in the scene. It was imaginatively written. It was, you know, it was stylish. Bob had this really, really strong vision for it um, in terms of how to present it and how to present the riders and how to make it become, you know, this vessel for BMX that was going to make it look larger than life and really, really dramatic. And I think Bob... Yeah, you, know, you ask anybody that has an informed opinion would tell you that Bob achieved that. Oh yeah. Um, and he, in the mid in the mid eighties, obviously realised that BMX freestyle was was coming along, and um, and also realised that he wasn't really the guy to put that together. He wasn't. You know, his voice was not going to be the right voice. So he uh, he recruited. He recruited Andy Jenkins. Uh, Andy Jenkins recruited Mark Luman. And Mark Luman and Andy Jenkins pretty much recruited Spike Jones. Which uh, you just actually sat down with all three of them. Yeah, I recently interviewed the three of them together, and it was really, really fun. Um, great stories, you know. They and this is kind of the first time Spike. I mean, I, I mean, I've been. Yeah, I was a big fan of Spike growing up with his writing and photography, but I feel like it's the first time Spike has even. The last time I even knew Spike was around BMX, I think he was at a Marino Valley contest just chilling, like in 94, but he'd already been out of it for a couple of years. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think Spike's talked or, you know, other than his friends that are still riding and stuff, I don't think he's yeah. even put a word out about BMX since then, you know? Well, he, I mean, he's definitely gone on a, a journey. It's kind of creative journey. Um, and, you know, I think it's a fair comment to make that he kind of started his his creative journey at Freestyling Magazine. Oh, yeah. He was he was a youngster, and he joined those guys. And, you know, typically, the criteria to work for that magazine was a, was 
you know, based on the intuition of the person hiring. And Bob Osborne had great intuition to hire the people he did. He didn't hire people based on their capabilities as, as a writer or a photographer. He hired people based on a hunch he had that they were the right people. Yeah. And, of course, that, that worked for him very well. And I think, you know, it's probably fair to say that Spike got hired really on that basis too by the of, fact he was writing into the magazine and, and he had this kind of dialogue with Andy and Mark and, and they, you know, felt he was a good fit and he came over and... And he came over when he was, he's like 15, 16? He came over when he was 17, I think. He came straight out of high school and he left high school and drove with his friend from D.C. to California. And there's a great story actually in the book where he first met uh, Andy and... Uh, Lumen the year before um, he had been on tour with the Haro team for two years so Ron Wilkerson and uh, Blyther and Nuri and Bill Hawkins who was the team manager had scooped him up in uh, Rockville yeah because he used to work at the shop he was he worked at a BMX shop when he was younger he did that That was his kind of again that was his first job he, he did it as a kind of work placement he, he had to do a, a work study um, situation when he was at high school and he, yeah. his, uh, he got he got a job working at Rockville BMX. And, you know, that was a pretty pivotal location for a lot of the teams, the factory teams, and he got to meet a lot of riders. But essentially, the, the horror guys scooped him up and took him on tour a couple of times. And uh, he, he tells the story of how he first met Lumen and Andy. And, and actually, they also tell the story, which is quite funny. So is, when, it, is it two different stories? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's essentially the same story from two sides of the parking lot. Yeah. Because uh, he pulled in on the back of Ron Wilkerson's ninja motorcycle and the two of them had open face BMX helmets on and Wilkerson you know just a pair of shorts and, and like a, a t-shirt and they came flying in to the parking lot on this massive motorcycle and they'd, they'd ridden the thing up the five from San Diego yeah. to get to LA and uh, doing like 100 miles an hour on the way up so yeah I think it was a bit of an experience but yeah, I, I kind of when he told that story, I was trying to picture it. No, You'd never catch well. me on the back of a motorcycle with Ron. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. So you're kind of just covering the the first ten years. Yeah, I mean, for me, really, the again, this is my opinion, and as the person putting the book together, I guess I have to defend it. But the first ten years, when you think about the beginning and the end of that decade, the end of the decade really saw the first major slump of interest in BMX. Yeah. The same way that people talk about the skateboard industry having these cycles, skate had really matured. It'd been on its first cycle already. By the by, the end of the decade, it was on its yeah. second cycle. You know, and it was actually one of the reasons that BMX got its opportunity because you know, as we spoke about earlier, skate parks, you know, opened their doors to bikes yeah. because they wanted uh, to make up the numbers. But um, the uh, the the beginning and the end of that decade, really, for me, were pretty pretty much a dotted line you know we know it didn't start and stop like that but something happened before for it to become something and yeah that's my point of 1979 when the bmx action trick team was formed and by 89 really the industry had tanked so you know i'm not i'm not sort of painting the picture of it being over at that point but certainly certainly it had risen and fallen and of course it was going to go somewhere else again after that yeah um but it was having its kind of first major incident I guess um, so I like the idea when I look into that 10 years of seeing a lot of innovation seeing this community this small community because for a lot of that decade certainly the first half of it you know a lot of it was based in California 
and there were a lot of different guys in the mix there were brands in the mix bike makers in the mix shoemakers in the mix yeah um, bike riders from different parts of the country coming through and becoming you know stars at contests but all these people at the same time are learning about something that's never existed they're all making their own path it's trailblazing because isn't it yeah the bike companies the riders the people trying to do clothing companies they're all trying to put a niche in because there's not you know they're all trying to get footing on something that's never been there you know precisely and you know what for that very reason and of course all those brands and a lot of those people weren't weren't doing it for the good of everybody else they were doing it because they wanted to be successful yeah we saw you know a lot of entrepreneurs bob harrow bob osborne rl osborne these guys you know were, were, were kind of in the mix doing selling stickers or designing clothing or whatever it was but they were all doing something for the first time and when i look at it i look at that kind of community of people and i think they were greater than the sum of their parts and that's why freestyle became this big phenomenon in that era um it was just this energy and this culture that developed and for me it happened in that first decade yeah um and actually when you look at everything else that happens after that it's evolution but it isn't necessarily invention so for me you know the learning curve the bike companies went through to to find the right geometries or or you know or to produce the bike in a certain way or where to produce it even you know everybody knows yeah i mean there's definitely a learning curve where people are getting stuff made in the states i mean haro was was Haro one of the first companies to go to Taiwan? Probably were, yeah. I think, and then uh, you had RL take Bully over there and get completely screwed because, you know, I don't know if Haro was bigger, but you, especially at that time, you really had to have somebody watch what was coming out. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the industry had matured, I think, at that point in Taiwan. Um, you know, so they were able to mass produce and they were able to do it affordably. And, of course, you know, as much as you can you can feel negatively that over the overseas production happened who's to say that you know bmx would have been as big had it not happened yeah you know you had to cater to a big audience so I mean, anyway that's a hard that's a hard conversation to have i think but um everything for me when i look in that even the tricks you know i was talking to fred becker on the phone last night fred was an early pool rider and he can remember mike dominguez at 12 years old riding in the bowls in Whittier yeah uh, Skate City and he said at 12 years old it was so obvious that this kid was going to be something different and something special he said he can almost remember like a five month period of first meeting Mike when he probably hadn't ridden a bike in skate parks before and then seeing him place second in you know the king of the skate parks in in the expert category race uh, riding against kids who were like three or four years older than him so there's a lot of cool magic stories in there from every angle, from every person we've spoken to. Um, so I think successfully at this point, I feel really confident that what I've tried to do with it is coming together really, really well. So you got the wizard part, you got, you know, what, what, the Haro tour, you know, the tour parts. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to cover some stuff so people can, you know, look forward to. Sure. Um, so th- I'm sure there'll be something with contests like AFA or two hips. There's going to be a pretty decent-sized chapter on the AFA, yeah, because okay. the AFA being the first kind of contest organization played its part in making... And it ran pretty much that whole decade. It, it really did, yeah. It really did. And then Two Hip came in, ran about half the decade, but it did revolution... I mean, it did ramp things up. Two, two Hip gave it an opportunity to revolve again, and and it did. 
and it, and it needed it. I felt like Two Hip gave it the right, you know, and people are always wearing jerseys, but I feel like Two Hip gave the writers a little more. It let them be creative, you know, and it it wasn't such. I mean, Ron's such a non-rule guy. Yeah, and I feel like the contest came off like. You know that, you know. It, it needed someone like Ron with, with his kind of belief system to do to do it. Yeah. To put it together in that way. Actually, I remember Mark Luman telling us a story in our freestyling interview when he talked about an early skate park, sorry, an early halfpipe contest, which is one of the earliest points he can remember skaters and BMX riders, I guess, freestyle riders, being in the same contest on the same day on the same ramp. And he said it was quite interesting to watch the the two different groups because you had the skaters who were very much about it was all about a jam session. You know, they didn't they didn't kind of compete intensely. They just jammed and at the end of it someone said, Yeah, that that guy was a raddest guy today, he gets to win it. Yeah. Um, and the BMX guys who were, you know, turning up in uniforms and, you know, very uh, prepared to compete. And I think he said at one point, you know, Christian Hasai turned up that day and just decided that day, yeah, I just I don't want to I don't want to skate, so we didn't bother. Yeah, you know, and the and the skaters were turning up, you know, drinking beer, smoking cigarettes, and the BMX guys were there, you know, turned out uniforms, helmets. But I mean, up. that I I always felt like that was more dictated by companies than definitely because I I know a lot of those dudes, and I think they'd have probably wanted just chill and drink a beer. And what it does is it speaks again to that to that you know the skate the skate cycle was mature it had already been a generation yeah and, and the BMX was that. still the first generation you know freestyle was like still that first generation yeah and Ron Wilkerson probably was the guy um, who took it in that direction yeah so for, in five years time you know the BMX guys would have been doing exactly what those skate guys were doing at, at a contest which was you know it was a much more relaxed affair it was a jam R.L. Osborne told me a story about he was judging a contest for Ron Wilkerson and he didn't truly understand what the, the criteria for judging it was. And I think he had a conversation with Ron and Ron just said, well, you know, just let these guys go and we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, that, that was this kind of difference in the, in the priorities of what the contest was about. Just let these guys ride and, and we'll figure out. Is there any key contest that you... AFA side or two-hip side that you kind of focus on or do you think were kind of pivotal... I think, I mean, the, the, the front end of the AFA, when it was the ASPA, um, in the skateboard, skate park end, when, you know... When the king... was what, King of the skate parks, who... Was that AFA? Yeah, well, it, was, it actually started as the ASPA. Okay. Um, so there were a couple of contests happening in a couple of parks down in Whittier, Lakewood. Um, I think there may have been one in Colton as well, but basically... Um, there were a few people riding pools at that time. Fred Becker, Steve Bennett is a known guy. Yeah. Jeff Watson is a known guy. Oh, Jeff Watson. Uh, yeah. So sick. Bob Morales and Eddie Fiola. Yeah. Um, and Morales was a guy that essentially at some point sort of picked it up and said, Let, let's organize this as a contest. Yeah. And um, so that end of it was pretty pivotal because what it did actually is it, it took BMX from being something that was probably a bit of a performance, you know, a bit of a show, a demo, and suddenly it turned into something with a with a different I guess a different angle which yeah. was okay who's the best at this and again I look at that and I think that's probably a pretty pivotal so moment which contest would you say um, well I mean certainly the pipeline contests and some of the some of the stuff that happened between some of the contests because the where, first pipeline contest was there even a pro class no there wasn't okay um, there was a pro class 
some point in 83, I'd need to check my notes, but Mike Dominguez, first guy to sign a pro uh, entry form. Yeah. Eddie Fiola, next behind him in, in line. Those guys, um, GT versus Haro, that, that little oh, yeah. rivalry started to develop. Uh, those guys were, you know, head and shoulders above pretty much everybody else. I yeah. Mean, Bly- know, I mean, Blyther was coming in, but he was still am. Blyther was coming in, definitely. I mean, there were other guys around that, that were getting high, you know, uh, Rich Segur, Donovan Ritter even, he was yeah. a guy. So, um, so yeah, for me, those early contests, when there was a, when there was a really, there's a little bit of intensity around, uh, around the, you know, the competition. Um, and then, of course, the AFA, as it kind of rolled out over the years and, and found all of these amazing riders from different parts of the country. Yeah. So people like Dennis McCoy, um, you know, Matt Hoffman obviously came in. I feel, like, it, the, the I feel like the AFA really spoke. I mean, you know, you, people will always, com- you know, you compare two hip to AFA, what they did and bad. And I, sometimes I feel like the AFA gets a bad rap. But one thing it did do is it really reached out to areas in the country that weren't big cities some of the, you know, like the heartland and stuff. And it really brought a lot of riders into the fold that, you know, maybe would never have had a chance to be seen because, I mean, literally the AFA contests were always in weird spots. <laughs> the, the, op- the opportunity is exactly right. That's yeah. what you're talking about, isn't it? And saying that, you know, it gave people in these areas that weren't going to go to California or, or wherever, um, it gave them an opportunity to compete. Yeah, and it created a it created ranks. It created a hierarchy in the riding, you know, the, the quality of the riders. Um, and actually, Bob as well had you know like an affiliate scheme as well, where they would have nationals and they'd have local yeah. because they were trying to develop riders through. So the AFA was was you know a huge thing. Um, you know, probably it's a fair comment to say that it didn't evolve quite to where it should have done towards the end. But you know, Bob Morales did a a stellar job of creating something. Yeah, but I mean, then you look at the two hip contests at the time. And I think as a spectator, and if you were a young rider, even going to watch, I think the whole aspect of that probably was way more exciting. Yeah, I think it was relevant for the, for the uh, age I mean, group. If you and... went, I mean, like there's a few two hip contests I could name off that are my favorites. But like you look at like Flint, Michigan, which I think is the second year two hip was doing contests. I mean, the yeah. energy. You watch that, and then you watch an AFA contest. And dudes are killing it, but the the energy levels are different. You know, it it definitely seemed more tribe driven. Yeah. Instead of, uh, you know, where the AFA was more not business driven, but felt more like a tribe with the two hip ones, and the the AFA felt more like cut and paste. Which it, I'm yeah. not trying to say it in a negative manner. It just it felt like there was more energy pouring in when those came. I think the AFA formula was a good one, but there was a point where probably it needed to evolve, and it needed to evolve really with with the, you know, the feedback and the help of the guys that were riding. Um, and I, I think what you just said then, you know, somebody in I think it was Dean Bradley when I interviewed him said, you know, Wilkinson's contests were like a meeting of the tribes. Yeah. You know, it was a totally different dynamic. There wasn't you know twenty five guys judging two hundred and fifty flatland riders, and trying to work out whether a guy is doing something innovative or whether he should be marked down because he put a foot down. Or how, how his showmanship is. or Whether the showmanship factor was yeah. there. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the things that Ron Wilkinson tells me whenever I ask him about the reasons he started to hip, and he said, well, there was, there's a very good reason for it. 
what we were doing away from the contest scene was different to what we were doing in the contest scene. So we were riding half pipes. We were doing different things. We weren't wearing uniforms. You know, there wasn't a kind of structured time limit to, to what you did. You dropped in, you rode, and we got better, and it evolved. So he was all about saying, okay, well, this, this is the future of, of freestyle contests. So, and I think, you know, to be fair to Bob Morales, that certainly he was a busy guy at that point. He had other interests too. Yeah. But, you know, for him to try and change a national format it almost like the, it was almost like the beast had gotten too big for him totally. to go in and change it. And like I said, I'm not trying to shit on the AFA. Of course not. I think it, it's a valid. I mean, point. but they're definitely two different beasts. But what the AFA did though, so well is bring so many people into BMX. You know, it created a sport. Yeah, it definitely did. Um, so kind of looking through, you know, the notes we got here, um, I see some names that I'm really excited about which you don't yeah. really hear that much about. But the old the old CW dudes, you sat down with like Diz and Seppi. <laughs> and, I mean, Diz Hicks and oh Seppi are two, you know, kind of like some of the... There's always been strong personalities, but these two really came through hard in the mid-'80s, you know? They, they were unique. Yeah. And... The whole CW team yeah. was just... It, it was so off-kilt. It was like a bizarro GT or something. Yeah. Well, it, it totally had... They had a personality that nobody else could could you know get near. Um, they were crazy guys. They had their own belief system about riding. Diz Hicks, in particular, was somebody that wanted to do what he wanted to do, and he was really good at it. Yeah. Um, and I got to tell you now, when I interviewed those guys in uh, Oakland at Seppi Seppi Mays's uh, workshop, I was crying with laughter. I mean, they seemed like wild dudes back then. <laughs> they they were... I mean, I tell you, let, let me give you a quote from Diz Hicks. He said, um, I was a rock star and my bike was my guitar. And that makes and, complete sense. And he kind of said it tongue-in-cheek, obviously. He doesn't, he doesn't believe it to be a, a serious statement, but it kind of does sum it up. I mean, it's... But on the outside looking in, you go, yeah, that you makes sense. He's going to argue with that. And, I mean, he moved that bike around the way he rode flat... And you could almost give Diz some early street cred. Like, you know, he's dead. But just the way he moved his bike around and used it, it was like almost like he was at a, you know, he was a, he was just putting on a show. He, he was, he was a showman and he'll tell you that he didn't, he didn't like competing. He told me that. I, I and he was like never a strong com- competitor, you, you know, yeah. but people, when it was his run, people were out there ready to see what he was going to do. Yeah. He was that guy though. He, he would... Yeah, he had his his own persona. He yeah. gave BMX a persona that nobody else was giving it. He related to a type of kid or a a kid with a, a, a an interest, you know, a level of interest in it or different types of interests. Yeah, that wouldn't have got involved probably without someone like. Yeah, him. A kid could go. I'm into metal, and I can be into BMX, and yeah. it's all it's all good. Guess what? This guy's making it. Maybe yeah, it's something that that is real. You know, is real. I can do that. He's coming out. They're blasting Slayer. <laughs> like, I, I've heard some stories from those guys that were were legendary. Yeah, and, and you know, I try not to use that word a lot because it does get thrown around a little too. I easily. think it can be overused in our scene. Yeah. And there are some people that I would consider to be legendary. But some of the stories they, they told me, um, Seppi and Diz, and actually Mike Buff as well, because he talked to them. I mean, what was the CW team back then? Diz. Mike Buff, Seppi, Magoo was the TM. Magoo was the TM, yeah. Um, and then it went to, Gork they, was the 
Didn't they find... Um, Pete Augustin rode for him for a little, but they kicked him off. Gary Pollock, I think. Gary Pollock. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, some of the time it wasn't all Scotty of those guys. Uh, I think Mark McGlynn for a little while. Okay, yeah. I'm not sure about Scotty. I think Scotty was... He may have been. Oh, he was... Yeah. Anyway. Um, Mark McGlynn, I know, did a little bit of... Uh, he rode for CW a little bit after yeah. he came off Haro. But anyway, yeah. I mean, I you know, Mike Barth has been a, a total pleasure to deal with on the project and is another guy that keeps me amused um, with some of his stories. I think about Magoo, Diz Hicks, Seppi Mays and Mike Barth together uh, in a group on the road and that, you know, that's a pretty potent mix. Yeah. <laughs> so there's some great stuff to come out of it, yeah. And, and there's a story I'd love to put in the book I can't do about um, uh, Diz owing Buff some money. And, uh, and, how, and how Diz got out of debt. No, it's, you it's pretty, uh, out of respect to those guys. All right. As funny as it is, I probably better, better not tell it. But. Um, People should ask Mike Buff, though, when they see him. Okay, so if, you, if you're around <laughs> Buff, you know Buff, ask him how, how Diz had to pay him back. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, I'm trying to think of stuff that we're maybe missing. This can be in the book. I mean, you're going to have interviews with the writers. There's going to be stuff about the contest. Um I mean, what I'm trying to do really is, I mean, I, I have this phrase I use occasionally when I talk about it called pulling back the curtain. Yeah. Okay. And what that means is I'm trying to get, I'm not trying to record the things we know. I'm trying to reference them and go deeper. Yeah. So the way I've tried to do that in this particular book is um, to have way more narrative from the contributors than mine. Yeah. So I'm not trying to write, you know, 70,000 words and tell this story with, with what these guys tell me. The challenge has been how do I put the story together using their voice? So, you know, what that does is it creates a little bit of a challenge in terms of how you question people. So a lot of the content and the interviews have just been discussions. Yeah. And I can tell you now, you know, some of those discussions have gone long, four or five hours. I, I spent two days with... Um, Bob Osborne in Montana recently and I interviewed him pretty much full on for two days and we talked about all sorts of random amazing stuff yeah um, and what I do is then I go in and I pull it out and I and I try and thread it together so um, what that does is it gets a little bit more of an insightful you know level of content instead of me saying well these guys did this and or you know here's my defined question what's your defined answer it's more about me saying, you know what, that's a great story. Yeah. So the book has this kind of, a little bit more of a kind of spiritual feel about it because it's it's going a little bit deeper into the personal side of, of the story. And how BMX affected each of these guys. and Yeah, and, you know, not trying to turn it into a, a, a you know, a tearjerker or anything like that, but um, what it does is it brings a lot of humor and it brings a lot of very relatable content. So, you know, you can hear someone talking about something and think, God, I used to see that guy ride. I'd never thought he would have felt about it like that. Yeah, oh, yeah. I never thought he would be nervous or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, those dudes, especially in the 80s, were propped up to be such superstars um, when they're just normal dudes riding. And nowadays, like, when you see riders, they feel more like normal dudes because of just the way social media and stuff works back then. Yeah. But, I mean, in the 80s, you could literally slap a dude in an ad and prop him up. And make him a superstar. Turn on the dry ice. Yeah, turn on the dry ice. Give him a nickname. Ramp up the saturation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think, you know, essentially, you know, I didn't want it to be 
a heavy documentary book. Yeah. I wanted it to be a book that people that are fans of, of this story would really enjoy. Um, and for me, when I think about what I would really enjoy, because I'm a fan of the story, I enjoy reading what Mike Buss got to say. Yeah. What R.L. Osborne's got to say. And what my job is really is to is to kind of, you know, is to poke my stick in the right place to get the information. And everyone's been really, really super cool about it. And everyone's really understood the... Um, you know the nature of what this is trying to be. Well, I mean, these stories don't come out. You know, that's half the reason I didn't want to do the podcast because I mean, some of these, some of these writers, I mean, dudes are like fifty. Even some of the writers from that early skate park scene are probably pushing sixty now. Definitely the early ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. These people, not to sound weird, but not everybody's gonna be around forever. And if you don't get these stories and get these histories out of everybody, it's gonna be lost. Yeah. And then we're gonna lose key parts of you know, our lifestyle's history, you know? I, I think about this, one of the things I think is missing in in this scene or this appreciation that we have for it is really a definition of the culture of what it is. And you look at what skate and surf do, and have always done traditionally well, surf better than skate, is document their history. Yeah. They've always done it well. There's always a lot of good photography around, and there's always a lot of people that feel passionate about telling a story. So... I kind of think this could be that. Yeah. And one of the one of the things I did actually as recently as this week, I was I think I was looking online yesterday, you know, looking at social media and as I do as a fan, you know. Yeah. I think I was looking at the Vans Pro Cup, which is going on down in yeah, Sydney yeah. right now. That whole that whole Vans Pro Cup thing seems awesome. Yeah. Plugging Vans. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was looking at that and I was looking at, you know, I think Dennis Anderson or somebody writing or or it might have been um I can't remember, but I was watching you know for 10 minutes or something and i remember thinking you know these guys are really no different to the guys that were doing the same thing 35 years ago and that's not to take anything away from anybody by the way because the one thing that is key is that there's been evolution in the trick you know in the in the style of writing and the tricks but i think it's really important for everybody that there's something of a reference point for where this came from well, and the thing is that even for, like, the younger... Not to cut you off, but I just did. Uh, but, you know, like, for those dudes like Dennis Anderson, Jason Watts, you know, Chase yeah. Hawk, all those dudes. And I know those those dudes do know the history, but a reference point for them to look at be like, you know what? In 83, dudes were riding so good and hard. It, it, I mean, it's unfathomable to think, like, how good dudes were at that point. Yeah, and that, and that is not well known. When I look around social media and I see you know all these different all these different kind of people appreciating it very passionately appreciating an era the era they rode or the rider yeah. they admired you know for me that this needs to be tied down so somebody can look at it and say you know what there's a real culture here this isn't you know this isn't disconnected well and a lot is, of those dudes are they focus on their their you know and i think we're all a little guilty of it, but they focus on their you know their decade or their yeah. you know mid school old school 80s 90s they focus on their thing where maybe sometimes, like, you know, BMX as a lifestyle, as a culture, does itself a disservice because there's dudes they can connect with right now, too, to stay excited about, you know, yeah. that are still riding that sort certain way. I know BMX has so many branches and goes so many different ways, but especially nowadays with how easily it's accessible, you can just reach out and grab one of those branches and be like, oh, I'm so into this new dude, you know, like yeah, totally. Jason Watts. I, that dude's awesome, you know, and he's so freestyly, but he's like a 
cement skate parky, and it just something I connect yeah. to. But he's new, you know. I feel kind of same way when I watch him as I do sometimes when I watch an old dude, you know. Yeah, and you know what? It's not about forcing these guys to to go through a history lesson. No, but it's about giving them something relatable that they can look at and say, do you know what? That that could that would been that would have been me thirty years yeah. ago doing that. And actually, that that guy looks like me. He's got the same haircut. He's got the same look in his eye. And you can even see styles back then that match. Yeah. You know. So again, you know, without without wanting to sound like, you know, the guy that lives in the past with all of it, because I love BMX. Yeah. I, I love freestyle BMX. Now. <clears throat> I love to watch it. I just think that there needs to be something there that people can put their hand on and say, you know what, this is where it began. And actually, what I'm doing now. I can see all the similarities and the comparisons. Yeah. And actually, I feel proud that I'm doing something. I'm on. I'm on this kind of grapevine of evolution. Yeah. And where's it going to go next? Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. I don't know. People can call me out and, and call it out as bullshit, but that's just kind of what I think. I think that they're the experience I had, particularly on one of the early horror projects, when I spoke to some of the modern writers about the history, was I got nothing but a passionate and excited response from people. Yeah. Uh, Dennis Ennison is a guy I would say, I can remember vividly him, him, you know, not really knowing much about Haro, but the moment he did, just seeing his whole kind of, you know, just his excitement and his passion and his proudness, maybe, or pride in, yeah. in the fact he was writing for the brand. So I hope, uh, you know, I hope that this is a little bit of a kind of, a point for people to be able to reference now. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I know we've hit some names, but what are what are some of, who are some of the guys that you've sat down with? You know, like, so there's somebody out there, you know, we've talked about Diz, we've talked about, you know, Ron, but maybe run through some of the writers you've talked to. So if there's somebody out there that's, like, looking forward to hearing something or seeing a photo or, you know. Certainly um, on the on the AFA chapter where, you know, there's there's limitless people to talk to. Um, I'll be talking. I haven't spoken to Rick Molitano yet, but I desperately want to, and he's agreed to be involved. So I, I'm going to speak to Rick um, imminently. But obviously, I've spoken to guys Ron Blyther, Dominguez. Uh, recently, spent the weekend with Josh White and Scott Freeman, um, which was fantastic, fun, and really a good education thing for me because I didn't know as much about those guys as I do about some of the others. But that was a really, really I mean, interesting. Jo- yeah, Josh is. He's the he's the chain link in between Dominguez and Hoffman. I feel like he, he definitely is, <coughs> and and he, you know, in his own right as a rider, is, you know, I mean, is he a legend? Probably. Oh yeah. Do you know what I mean? A fantastic uh, level of ability, level of style, uh, and a really super cool dude as well. Yeah. You know, in terms of how he how he kind of reconnects to it. Um, so Dave Volker, uh, Dave is someone who I've spent time talking to over the years and because of you know whatever the project has been at the time whoever the brand is I've not been able to bring Dave in but I was super excited to get Dave into when you talk to Dave he's so passionate like the way he speaks about BMX yeah I know like it sounds silly but it really comes from a pure place in him yeah, and that's why he's still riding, and that's why he's been the guy that's never left it and continued riding. Because I mean, he, he, when he talks about it and really gets into it, he's never cared about contests. It's never even been about sponsors. It's just, the he really comes from a pure place in him. Yeah, he, he's he's definitely connected to it in a unique way, and and that's why he's so good at it. You know, that's why yeah. he's such a great rider, and he's that's why he's, you know, a guy that people talk about 
um, as a great street rider too. I mean, he, for me, when I talk to Dave, he talks about, you know, that's when he gets excited when he talks about street riding. Yeah. Um, and other people, I, I'm talking with Pete Augustine, um, Eddie Roman, those guys again in that in that kind of genre, the street genre. Um, of guys have got some good insight. You talked to like, did you talk to any of the like Drob or any of those dudes? Yeah, I spoke with Maurice. Okay. Um, I'm also going to speak with Hugo um, quite soon. These are the last guys I've got to see actually. Uh, spent some time with Todd Anderson. Um, so on the rider front, we got some good people. DMC, Matt, uh, all those guys are going to contribute. Yeah. Or have contributed. Um, and I'm sure there's some names we're missing too. Yeah, there are. Richard Gurr actually, he's, he's involved. Um, you know, we talked about Mike Barf, Ira Osborne, Bob Horro, Bob Morales, uh, Stu Thompson, um, Fred Becker, um, and then you know we, I'm talking with Gail Webb. Yeah, uh, Gail was a you know somebody that gets overlooked a lot for her role as being someone that was you know really proactive, getting freestyle in front of people. Yeah, and, and she's is, she's like a big time early promoter of skateboarding and BMX, you know? And you know what Gal did that was so that was so cool and unique is that Gal was one of the first people to take it outside of the known audience. She was yeah. the person that took it to malls and, and things like that to get kids that had never seen it interested. So yeah. Gal's got some input um, on the on the kind of media side, Dean Bradley, uh, Dean has been at, Dean was at BMX action for a short period of time. Dean was at Skateboarder Magazine, well, actually, Action Now Magazine, which is what Skateboarder became. Um, and Dean, a lot of skateboarders get salty about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dean has, Dean's like uh, living in secrecy somewhere. No, he's not really. Uh, D. David Morin, who was the editor of that magazine. Dave Dash, who was the publisher at Surfer Publications. Yeah. Those guys at Action Now had quite a unique, although quite short, role in um, helping to guide Bob Harrow, actually, with his brand, when he came away from BMX Action, uh, those guys were were very experienced in the skate scene, and they they were pretty. Well, actually, now was like really some of the first skate park photos, like with Jeff Watson and you know yeah. maybe Tinker was Tinker. Um, in? I'm not sure if Tinker Tinker was on the front of BMX Action in '80, but what Action now did really well and was probably their their undoing as well. Was it started to combine different elements? It literally was like the first sports. action sports. It exactly. it saw it like action now because it covered surfing, motocross, BMX, skateboarding, mountain biking, roller roller skating, roller skating, gravity powered. Yeah, it, it was kind of that magazine. It was twenty years too early. It, it was, and you know the weird thing with it is, you know, a lot of people don't know. I mean, in a way, that magazine created action sports yeah but it fell under the radar because it didn't last and it didn't last because it was a little bit early they couldn't get enough ad revenue from any of the because people didn't genres. see the market that was there yeah people didn't understand i don't think or or the the scenes hadn't evolved to kind of merge together yeah um, but they they struggled because you know they put bmx in it was never enough for them to get good ad, ad revenue same thing with surfing sandboarding um, and that's why actually, you had like OP sponsoring BMX skate yeah. and surf dudes back then. Exactly. So and they and they they hooked up with Bob for a couple of years, um, and they were pretty uh, influential in in his kind of development as a young kid starting a brand. Yeah. You know, laying claim to this this new sport. Um, so there's some really good feedback in the in the book from those guys too. James Casimus was the photographer. Um, James is uh, 
got some good insights and also some great imagery. Um, Any other media guys? I mean, you've talked to like we said, Lumen, Spike, Andy, Lumen, Spike, Bob. and Andy. Which again, you know that that those guys uniquely crafted the image and the culture of, of freestyle. Um, I mean, it's still you still feel it today. You know, yeah, it's, it's undeniable how you know how how strong an impact those guys had. Yeah, um, I mean, even right. I mean, writing wise and you know, in industry wise, you know, media yeah. wise, they, they, they did it all. But Bob Osborne deserves a lot of credit because yeah. he, he was a guy with, um, a really strong intuition for the right people. And, you know, he, he hired Andy great story. As I spoke about earlier, each one of those guys came to the magazine from a different place. Having never met, they developed a relationship between them individually by writing to the magazine and writing back and forth. But they all had this this kind of lifestyle that was, you know, BMX was in there, freestyle was in there, music, punk music was in there, maybe new wave music. Um, and they, they all found these really intricate common interests that they had. So when they came together at the magazine, this kind of magic, you know, this kind of magical effect, yeah. I guess, was what we read in the pages of, of the magazines. Um, BMX Action and Freestyle Magazine, I think it's really hard to deny we're not two of the real cultural leaders in freestyle yeah actually in bmx and freestyle um so kind of touch i mean we, we covered the project we've you know hopefully everybody's got the info so fill everybody in like on you know a when the projects do um how they can go and learn more about it um yeah, you sure. do have some special you know there's people sponsoring so we went out to some of the some of the brands yeah and they and we picked brands actually that were pivotal to the era Mm -hmm. okay, so we went to Vans, we went to Oakley, who were both, you know, uh, two of the first kind of clothing, accessory, lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, Oakley started off as a BMX grip company, if people don't. Yeah, pretty know. much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Vans obviously were really, really um, uh, popular in BMX racing. Yeah. But Vans were a pretty proactive company too. They helped to fund contests, they helped to sponsor riders. So culturally, they helped to drive the scene. Yeah. Um, and we spoke to some of the bike companies, Haro, GT, Dino, um, SE, and Skyway. And we said to each one of them, guys, listen, you know, we, we know you're not going to write us a big check, but if you can give us something, what we'll do is we'll create these, these little packages that come along with the book for the guys that care about that kind of stuff. Yeah. The guys that want the experience, you know, uh, of having some authentic things that come with the book. Yeah. And we'll, you know, what we'll do is we'll try and make it really affordable for people because we don't, you know, we're not trying to, we're not trying to get wealthy off the project. It's more a case of how do we get some cash flow in? How do we get some working capital into the project? Um, to make it move forward. To make it move forward because it, it's really tricky to do that. There's a lot of work that goes in. I mean, I'm seven months of working into this thing so far and, you know, kind of self-funded. Yeah. So, um, what people can do is we, we did sell out of our original package, which had some van shoes in it that we designed yeah. um, and some ugly grips and some jerseys and stuff. But the first edition of this book will be available as a kind of print to order yeah. to demand item. So if you want the first edition, um, you can go onto our website, which is www. the number two w freestylehistory.com. Okay. So, and we'll put the link. We'll, we'll put a yeah, link down. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, we'll put a, we'll put a link down. Everybody can click on. Um, and you can go on. and You can read a little bit about the project. So it's dedicated to the project. Yeah. So just talking a bit about you know the reasons for it. 
Yeah, so we've got some replica T-shirts on there from the era uh, that we've licensed from the original brand owners too. So it's not, you know, we're not kind of half-assing it and just... And there's some really off. cool stuff on there, so... Yeah, we, we picked some stuff that was, you know, that was pretty authentic. So Morales, Viola, Freestyle T-shirts, AFA T-shirts, Pipeline T-shirts. Yeah. Um, so people can buy, you know, a T-shirt and we'll ship it out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, really, it's it's all really just a kind of mechanism to make the project happen. Yeah. Because, you know, typically there's a lot of work involved, there's a lot of traveling, there's a lot of interviewing, there's a lot of designing, writing. So it's really just a kind of way of, of helping to fund it and make it happen. And we just believe it needs to happen. Me, Xavier and I are pretty much the team on this project. Yeah. He's doing, he's looking after a lot of the operational stuff and he's allowing me to kind of dodge some of that stuff and, and just get the book written and get it out. Xavier does a lot in BMX. I think people don't realize he's a, a very unique figure in yeah. the scene because he's loved and trusted by everybody. He's a stellar guy. He's you know he's been riding since you know one of the, one of the original you know pipeline tribe. Yeah, Mikey and Blyther and you and, he, know, and he still has a vert ramp in his backyard and rides. He's got he's got a half pipe in his back garden. Yeah, so you know he he's. He deserves a lot of credit. Oh, yeah. And hopefully I've, I've made that clear. But um, So, yeah, I'd say get on the website. Um, and you guys have an Instagram, too? We have an Instagram. So that's just, I think that one's just wall-to-wall freestyle? Yeah, wall-to-wall freestyle. And what I try to do on there, we've got so many images, so many amazing images. Some of them aren't really print quality. So what I try to do is just keep a, a regular feed of stuff on there yeah. that people will like that probably, well, we can't use in the book. Um which is, a, I guess, a twofold benefit because, one, you're going to see some stuff you'd never see, and, two, you're going to see a book full of stuff you haven't already seen. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got that. We've got the Facebook page, too, which is uh, Wall to Wall, the birth of the freestyle movement. Okay. Um, and we'll put links of, for this all, yeah, man, I appreciate all at the bottom. So if you guys are on, just look down at the bottom, and, and you'll have links to everything. It, it, you know, dude, just to sum it up, it's a project that I think – you know, everybody would probably agree needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, you came into my shop day and you saw my, I mean, I'm a big, BMX needs more books, especially with the magazines dying out. It's like, there needs to be something out there, you know, something that you can put on your table, you can have in your office, you can have, you know, in your library that you can just pull out and reference. Yeah. And, you know, that something that just saves, you know, and saves and shows you know the the lifestyle that we've all grown up with absolutely yeah something that something that records it it's something physical you can pick it up it's a big book as well it's 240 pages imagery in there from bob osborne uh imagery in there from james casimus imagery in there from bob harrow you know we've had a incredible amount of assets to to work with it's kind of war chest of unseen imagery dean bradley's given me thousands of images to choose yeah. from. Pro shot stuff that's never been seen. Um, so, yeah, I, I can... I guess I could say fairly confidently that people are going to dig it. All right, cool. I hope so, anyway. I think everybody's going to be psyched. Anything that we forgot? Uh, no, apart from the fact we didn't uh, have, like, a margarita or anything. We could. I thought, I thought that's what came with the snake bite interview. I thought it was fully catered. Oh, I ate a chicken quesadilla. I mean, that's about it. Chi-Chi's been good as well. He's asleep in the back. Yeah, the dog's sleeping in the back. All right, cool. No, well, thanks, right. thanks dude, for listening, guys. Dude, thank you for having thank me. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And, yeah.
Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Um, and if you're into classic videos from the Northwest, uh, I've posted all the parts from Blueprint and Building the Underground on the Snakebite BMX YouTube page. Um, so go over there and give them a watch. Give us a su subscribe. Uh, do what you need to do. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Tell us you hate them. Um, and if you haven't subscribed to Dig BMX um, and their YouTube channel, you should do the same thing. Um, yeah, thanks always, guys. Talk to you soon.